What name could contain such a glory? In the cool breezes of Eden, brought from the infant earth, one arose, the voice of his creator speaking his identity to life. Adam, man. And as heaven waited short with breath, the creator spoke yet another, Eve, mother of all the living. So it was with Abraham, named in the promise as the father of nations, Peter, the rock upon which the church would stand. The name called to life the destiny within. The name set the stage for all that was to come. And unto us a child was born. And what name could contain his glory? For he was mighty God, as the universe gasped into being, flinging rays of light from his presence to pierce the void, to shatter the shadows to a tapestry of color. And he is mighty God, shattering our darkness, revealing our light, our truth in him. He was everlasting father when orphaned Israel needed a father's touch. When we, with grief-stricken cheeks, need the embrace of one who never leaves. When we have lost our way to dark horizons, it is our everlasting Father who lights the way home. He is Prince of Peace. When, like Elijah, we need the still small voice in the turmoil's midst. When, like David, we need the melodies of his presence to soothe our troubled minds. He is sanctuary within our trials, shepherd guiding us to still waters. And yes, he is wonderful counselor, God who gives counsel in the chaos, crafting disorder into calm and failure into beauty. He is a voice for the voiceless. He is dignity for the stateless soul. It is he who raised up a lowly shepherd to become a king. He who took the fishermen of Galilee and made them leaders of history. It is the counselor who redeems our lost years, breaking chains that have kept dreams imprisoned and joy confined. The name reaches across eternity, exclaimed by the splendors of galaxies, sung by the passions of angels, roared in heaven's fervor, exalted in creation's unfettered rejoicing. What name could contain him? What title? What soul renowned? This is our wonderful counselor. This is our mighty God. This is our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. What name could contain Emmanuel, God with us, Yahweh, the great I Am. What name could contain the word of life, the light of the world, the king of kings, the Lord of all? We bow to the name that holds every other in its matchless worth. What name could contain such a glory? What name? Jesus. We cry, Jesus. We cry, holy is the name.
He is our wonderful counselor who gives counsel in the chaos, crafting disorder into calm and failure into beauty. The voice for the voiceless. He is dignity for the stateless soul. He raised up a lowly shepherd to become a king. The fishermen of Galilee were raised up to change history as leaders. He redeems our lost years, breaking chains that have kept dreams imprisoned and joy confined. His name reaches across eternity. Today, as we continue in this series about the names of God, we are going to be talking about the name of Jesus as our mighty counselor or our wonderful counselor, our mighty God. He is wonderful. As we come in here today and we gather and it's Christmas time and we celebrate, I want us to be mindful. I think sometimes we, we say things, but we don't really know the power that's behind it. When we say our wonderful counselor, what exactly does that mean? Well, in fact, that is the first title that is ever in, in the, recorded in the Bible as being bestowed upon Jesus. I am so glad that we get to come in here in this room and we get to watch online. I know many of you are watching from all over the world right now. I, I see Netherlands, Sweden, Florida, Maine, uh, Indiana, Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Washington, Tennessee, Ohio, Wisconsin, Vermont, New York, Maryland, and South Carolina. Thank you for joining us because we are all joined together to acknowledge our wonderful counselor. There are so many names of God. And as we go through and talk about this today, I want us to understand that they're not just describing his attributes. It's not just an adjective. It is who God is. Isaiah, who was writing about this wonderful counselor, was actually writing 800 years before Jesus came on the scene, before he was born. And the thing that's so significant about what they were dealing with at the time is in the northern kingdom of Israel, they had fallen captive to the Assyrians and the residents of the land uh, were either being captured or they would take them and they would deport them back to where they had come from, knowing that that was supposed to be their promised land. Their homelands had become Assyrian provinces and the people were confused and upset and they were looking for counsel, but they were looking in all the wrong places. They started to consult mediums and other spirits out of fear. And what Isaiah is doing is he's trying to uh, prophesy hope back into the people. That listen, you do have a wonderful counselor who can give you wisdom and direction in a time that you need it. As a matter of fact, Isaiah's prophetic words, they are called the gospel of the Old Testament. Why is that? Because every single part of his book, they're all pointing and prophesying to Jesus. So it's the gospel of the Old Testament. 
In Isaiah 9, 6, he actually says this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, some translations have a comma. They say, wonderful comma counselor. But what I want you to know is actually in the Hebrew, which is the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, it actually, those two words, wonderful counselor, are together. I called a friend of mine who has four doctorates in theology. One is in Hebrew, one is in Greek. So I called him and I said, hey, some translations say wonderful comma counselor and some have wonderful counselor together. Can you just kind of go through the Hebrew text and can we just kind of converse and talk about this a little bit? And he said, those two words, those are compound nouns. They're two nouns together. Wonderful is not an adjective describing counselor. He said, it is a noun. And he said, in fact, what they would do is, and this is why Isaiah wrote this way, is because they knew that a legitimate king would get a throne name, which was a double noun, a compound Now, so he said, it is accurate that it is one name together, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Mighty is not describing God. It is mighty on its own, God on its own. He said, those are also both nouns. And when you go through and you begin to break this scripture out, it really comes to life. That's why I encourage people, men, really dig into your Bible. Go into your Bible and find out all the amazing things that are in there. Because the first title that was ever given to Jesus was Wonderful Counselor. So let's go through and let's talk about those two words. And I want to start with the word wonderful and break that word down. And I want to just explain something to you because in English, the currency of our words can sometimes be severely devalued because we would use the same word to describe lots of different things. It was a wonderful meal. It was a wonderful day. Troy Maxwell is wonderful. But all of those things have different meaning in our lives, but you're just supposed to assign meaning to them, and somebody's just supposed to understand the intensity. But in the Hebrew, that is not actually how things worked. They don't use the same name and just blanket statement the word wonderful. This particular word is the word pele, P-E-L-E. And it means awestruck. It means hard to comprehend, mind-blowing, marvelous, amazement, too incredible to believe, unfathomable. This Hebrew word also carries the idea of the supernatural. 
And the thing that is interesting is Isaiah three separate times references a baby as being the king. So he's inserting this supernatural idea concept that turns the kingdom of God upside down for everyone. Because they're trying to understand you're saying this this mind-blowing, marvelous, amazing, incredible king is coming as a baby? That doesn't make sense to our mind. We don't understand how you can say that. He's going to save us? We can't even grasp what you are saying. We, we can't, our minds cannot comprehend this. And, and the birth announcement, you say, is going to go to lowly shepherds? I think sometimes when we're singing the songs or when we're reading this, we don't understand that word lowly shepherds. We just say shepherds. We don't understand that in that day and time, they were considered lowly because they couldn't go to the temple because they were often covered in dirt and animal dung and everything else. They were filthy. And they weren't even allowed to go into the temple. But that's who got the birth announcement of the greatest king to ever be on this earth. So this is a a backwards concept for them. Wait, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes? We understand what you're saying here. You wrapped him in a, a shepherd's linen cloth? A lowly shepherd? The king of kings? The mighty God, he doesn't sound too mighty. mighty. I, I don't understand what you're even saying right now. And what Isaiah was doing is he was slapping the Jewish monarchy in the face and letting them know that they have no concept of the magnificence of God. Because think about it this way. In our lifetime, your lifetime, my lifetime, Our entire life, at most, we will ever use out of 100% capacity is 10% capacity of our brain. But yet, out of our entire life, that 10% that we'll use, we want to try to figure out every single thing about God. And some of us, if we're young, we've only used 1% or 2%. Me? I'd like to say I've used about half of it, 5%, but that means I'll live to be 102. I don't think we understand the concept here when Isaiah uses this word wonderful because we say wonderful day, wonderful meal. I had a wonderful time shopping. No, 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 no. This is a whole different thing. The script gets flipped and the folly of human wisdom gets exposed. That we don't really know as much as we think that we do. That God is so awe-inspiring and mind-blowing that we don't even get how he operates. Wait, in order for me to live, I must die? I, I don't understand that. I'm to be rich. I've got to give it away. 
I, I don't understand that. For me to win my enemies, I've got to turn the other cheek. None of this makes sense. Because he's flipped the script on what we know in our natural thinking. Everything is not always as it seems. There's this this juxtaposition that just doesn't seem like it's quite understood. And I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, is he not rightly called wonderful? He's infinite and an infant. He's eternal, yet born of a woman. He's almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast. He's supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph. The heir of all things, yet he's the carpenter's despised son. This is marvelous. It is a wonder and it should provoke awe and reverence and wonder in our hearts as we think about the real meaning of Advent, the real meaning of Christmas, the wonder of the Messiah. Mind-blowing. We can't understand it. There's a story about a man named Manoah in the Old Testament And it's in the book of Judges, and he was the father of Samson. And Manoah has this encounter with an angel of the Lord. And when you see angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's really the pre-incarnate Jesus. And so he has this encounter with what he he doesn't quite understand at the moment, uh, but he has this spiritual encounter and he's trying to understand it. And he, he, he just sees this figure and he says to this figure, what is your name? And this figure says back to him, why should I tell you my name? For it is wonderful. It is Pele. It is too big for you to understand, for you to comprehend, for you to grasp. And after this figure ascends back to heaven in a flame of fire, literally Manoah is scared to death. He goes to his wife and he says, we are going to die because I have literally just seen the face of God. This word shows the absolute inability to understand or comprehend the greatness of. Now, in 1993, Pastor Troy had an experience like that. And he was actually, the irony, just like we've been talking about, he was in a public bathroom. None of us could find him for two hours searching for him. He's in a public bathroom on his face, bawling his eyes out, crying before the Lord who is standing in front of him, who touched his mouth and touched his hands. That was the day he was called into ministry. For almost an entire week, he could not speak. You want to know why when an angel shows up to people in the Bible, the first thing out of their mouth is do not be afraid? 
Because when their super shows up in front of your natural, something's going to give. If you've ever had one of those supernatural encounters, you are broken in a million pieces because you know there is nothing in you that is as good as what is standing in front of you at that moment, that presence. And here is Pastor Troy. For two hours, we were looking for him. I mean, we didn't even called security. We don't know where the dude is. Can't find him in a public bathroom. Did you know God will get you anywhere he sees fit? On the floor, sobbing his eyes out. An encounter with the Lord. So many people ask us, you know, how did you guys stand strong in 2020 and 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 all the subsequent things that were to happen and, and so many people were buckling. We've had an encounter with the Lord. We're afraid not to listen to him. What's the alternative? When you have literally had an encounter with the presence of God, you do what he says, when he says, and how he says. And you don't care if anybody likes it or not. What I think the problem has been is that we've got a lot of people leading that have never had an encounter before. Because when you encounter the presence of God and he whispers to you, you obey and you come into line. And it doesn't matter who is going to get mad at you, who's going to get upset, or even who will walk away. You just know you don't want his presence leaving. So let me tell you, when I see people waffling around or struggling with sin and inability to stay on the right path, I know it's because they've never had the encounter. When you have an encounter, you get your stuff straight. You apologize. You're doing what my husband was doing. Anything you say, God, anything you say, God, anything you say, God, that's all he could say. So when you get tested, when the wind blows, when the storms come, you are not easily moved because you've been behind the veil. I think what's wrong with our society a lot today is many of us have not been behind the veil. So we're dipping out on God because we don't understand that he is wonderful. That's not an adjective describing counselor. He is Pele. He is wonderful. And when you have that kind of encounter, there is no alternate plan. There is no plan B. You want the presence of God and you will not risk that presence of God to please man ever, ever. That's who he is. He is wonderful. Let's talk about this other word, counselor. The Hebrew word for counselor is paraclete. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-E, paraclete. And it literally means to walk alongside. 
You see the Greek form of this word show up in the New Testament a lot, parakletos. And you see it uh, specifically referenced to when Jesus left and it said he left the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, parakletos, walked alongside because Jesus did not want to leave us without us being covered. So let's talk about that word paraclete. It's like a two-sided coin. There is a two-sided aspect to that word paraclete. There's a for you aspect of a counselor. And then there's a with you aspect of a counselor. The for you is the advocate acting on your behalf. Like a judge would say, counselor, are you ready to stand up and give your closing arguments? That is one aspect of a counselor, like an attorney who is advocating in God's heavenly court for us. Jesus was our advocate. He advocated for us. And then there's the other side, the with you. It's the advisor who is teaching and reminding When we see that word being used for the Holy Spirit, that parakletos word, it's it's literally another paraclete, another comforter, another counselor, another helper, because Jesus didn't want to leave us uncovered. You take those two words, wonderful counselor, and you put them together, those two nouns together, and you have someone that blows your mind that is the best advisor and advocate you could ever know. That is who our God is. But let me ask you this. How many times are we consulting him? We have all of that at our disposal, but how many times are we consulting him? Let's take this, these two words, wonderful counselor, and let's break them down even further because God's counsel to us came to us in the very beginning in the garden. God said to Adam, Adam, let me tell you what to do and what not to do. I'm going to make it very simple for you. From any tree of the garden, you can freely eat, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, nope. In the day you eat of that, you shall surely die. We love to focus on that tree, but there was another tree in the garden that God gave them counsel for, and it was called the tree of life. And he said, eat of this tree and you will live forever. The problem is, is that we didn't listen. God gave us counsel and we chose not to listen. And I know some of us might still do that today. From the very beginning, he said, do this, don't do this. Now, here's the thing that I want us to understand today is Adam and Eve are the ones that made the choice to disobey. They were put out of the garden because of their disobedience. God was very clear, do this, don't do that. The day they did what was wrong, they began to die physically, and immediately they died spiritually. 
The thing that I love, though, about God is even in their disobedience, he still created another moment for his counsel in the garden. He didn't just wipe his hands and say, you know what, I'm quitting on you. I literally just gave you this in chapter two and in chapter three, you're disobeying. (laughs) My kids were little, I would say, "I, I literally just told you this. I can just see God going. Did you not, do you not remember chapter two? They literally did exactly what he said not to do and he was removed Both of them were removed from the garden. When we don't listen to what God has to say, there are consequences. And you know what? We can't get mad at God because we're not living in the Eden that he promised. Because he gave us directions on how to stay in Eden. Many of us might look at that situation and we might surmise a few things. Well, first of all, when Adam and Eve messed up, why didn't God just go ahead and send Jesus then? Why do we have thousands of years of man's disobedience? Why didn't he just go ahead and send Jesus then? Oh, they messed up. Jesus, come on, I need you. Well, Adam and Eve had already taken for granted the fact that they had this closeness with God and they walked with him in the cool of the day. They took for granted the closeness that they had. And what God needed them to understand is there's consequences for our behavior. And now we can look back and see thousands of years of what our consequences are. Try it on your own. See what happens. You fail. You need forgiveness. Thousands of years of us thinking we could fix it. We try it. It doesn't work. Jesus has to come in over and over. Look at the Israelite story. Thousands of years of us realizing apart from God, we can do nothing. If he would have just sent Jesus right away, we would have also taken that for granted. He needed lots of history for us to be able to have recorded in in the books to be able to go back and say, yep, there's a lot of history here of what happens when we try to do it on our own. Not only that, but here's the other thing. Why was God such a meanie and put him outside of the garden? God wasn't being mean or being unkind. They had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means they invited sin into their life. And because they invited sin into their life, God had to get them out of the garden because if they were to go and partake of the tree of life, they would have lived forever and God did not want them living forever in a state of the condition of sin that they were in. So he removed them from the garden and banned them from the garden Their consequences were their protection. We don't always acknowledge and thank God for the consequences. But they're consequences that we have to pay because the wages of sin is death. Now, in the Old Testament, 
literally just a chapter later after Adam and Eve fell, you see they're no longer covered with fig leaves anymore, but they're covered with animal skins because the first sacrifice was instituted to cover sin. Long before we had all the microscopes and all the technology to really know the power is in the blood, when, you know, I have to go for physical every year at 51 years old, and they take my blood. They can tell me everything they need to know about me by my blood. Long before the doctors could prove it, God was saying the power is in the blood. So the blood had to be shed in order to cover sin in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there is no longer, you and I do not have to shed the blood of animals because Jesus, the perfect sacrifice came, shed his blood on the cross, and it doesn't cover our sin like the Old Testament. It washed it completely away. Completely. But even in the midst of our sin, when our disobedience was at an all-time high, I think sometimes we think that God took joy and pleasure out of kicking them out of the garden. And I can just tell you, I'm sure it hurt God's heart deeply. He made them to fellowship with him. And they had blocked that fellowship. And the only way through was through the blood. They had to go through the blood. I was having a conversation with a gentleman from our Lake Norman campus two weeks ago. It was on a Sunday. And he said, man, I'm so thankful for your daughter. Um, he was referring to my 21-year-old daughter. He said, she's really been counseling my wife and I on our teenage daughter and just really been helping us walk through a hard time. And my ears perked up because she gave us a little bit of a run for our money when she was uh, 17 years old. And I said, oh, really? Tell me what that counsel looks like. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> and uh, she goes to our, our South End campus, but she, um, she works for Mercedes-Benz Mercedes down in South Charlotte and sells cars. And so he had gone to buy a car from her and she had really just been working with their family, not just on the car aspect, but just helping them with walking through the hard years of parenting. And so I said, tell me this wonderful advice from my 21-year-old. I would love to hear it. And he said, she told us that we need to stick to our guns, that things are hard right now, but that she's watching every single thing that we are doing and that we need to stick to our guns. And that when she was 17 years old, uh, she wasn't listening and I was like, keep talking. <laughs> and she was recounting for him how we had sat her down and had a conversation about the rules of our house and how this was a house that was focused on the Lord and that we were going to do things that lined up with the word of God and there was not another option. This is how, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's no plan B. This is what we're going to do in our house. And you have an opportunity to live in this house and abide by the rules. And if you can't, 
There are other arrangements you can make, but they will not be living here. Well, she told him, I didn't really believe they'd do it. So I just kept doing whatever I wanted to do. And then finally, one day I came home and my dad, because uh, I was a minor, I was 17, my dad uh, knew I didn't have access to the money in my account. So he withdrew all my money, the cash, stuck it in an envelope. My parents packed all my stuff, packed everything I had and put it on the dining room table and told me I could come pick it up. But they were serious about living my life for the Lord and that that was the only option and live in their home and they weren't backing away from it. And I didn't think they'd go through with it, but they did. And then she said, you know what? And I thought, well, we'll see how long this lasts. My parents are pushovers. We've always had a good relationship. They're not going to want their daughter being gone. And it was Christmas time. This started in the beginning of December. First week of December goes by. My daughter's room is empty. Every day I cried. Second week of December goes by. My daughter's room is empty. This mama's heart. I was in tears. Third week goes by. The lights weren't on in her room and I remember the cleaning lady coming over the house and asking me how come her room was empty and everything was gone and I remember getting ready to talk to her and all I could do was just sob. I couldn't even tell her and she knew, okay, okay. (laughs) Fourth week goes by. Christmas. My daughter's room is empty. I remember just going downstairs to spend time with the rest of the family and everything in me was trying to not have the tears like crocodile tears flow down my face because it's Christmas. Your kids are supposed to be in your nest. Your kids are supposed to be with you and supposed to be together. And there's this wrestle that you go through as a parent because you know what's right. You know there's a standard, but you still have this earth suit. You still have this flesh and you want your babies close. And I remembered wrestling with that and crying. It's Christmas. We're singing the songs and my heart, part of my heart was empty But I knew that doing the right thing is not always the easy thing. And I was not going to bow or cave my knee. If the standard was the standard that God put, it must have broken his heart to put Adam and Eve out of the garden. But any time that Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to repair the relationship God was always there. He never lowered the standard. He never said, okay, okay, Adam and Eve, I realize you did what I told you not to do. Uh, All right, I'll think of a different plan. The standard was the standard. No matter how hard it hurt the heart of God. How many parents do I see today? That in order to appease their children. Oh, you want to identify that way? Okay. 
You want to live however you want to live. Well, I, I mean, I love you, and love means I accept everything you're doing. So I, I'm, I'm going to acquiesce because uh, I, I don't want you to leave. Because then, then I'll be a failure as a parent. Can I just tell you what my daughter said to this man was if my parents had not stuck to their guns, I would have never seen what true love looks like. That you're willing to sacrifice personal pain and personal anguish and having an empty bedroom at Christmas knowing my family should have been together. But she's the one who was removed from the garden because of her behavior. At any point in time, she could come back in. One month later, she came back in. She asked for forgiveness, and we began a plan of restoration for her. You know what's interesting? Because I didn't see her for that month. But I heard that she was in church still every Sunday. You see, the word of God does not return void. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know where all of your children right now are. I don't know what relationship may have gone sideways. I don't know any of that. But what I do know is the word of God is the word of God. Sure, you're going to have to wrestle through pain. No question. But what I will tell you is that when the word of God is in their heart and we have planted the seed, it is not always mama and daddy that are going to reap the harvest. So here is my 21-year-old daughter preaching to this family at our Lake Norman campus, giving them counsel and guidance because she said, I have been there. But parents, what your kids need most, they don't need you to be a BFF. They need you to be mama and daddy. And they need you to tell them the truth in a world that's full of misinformation. They need you to be the truth, to be the lighthouse that keeps them from banging on the rocks. And they won't get it right all the time. You and I haven't either. But what we do as parents and what we do as Christians, this carries over into your job. The truth is the truth whether your boss likes it or whether your boss doesn't. And the reason the world is in the place that we are in right now because we've stopped going to our wonderful counselor. We've started trying to appease so people won't not like us. I'm telling you, when you've had an encounter with Jesus, you don't have the disease to please. You just want to please him. And there are times where God grieves over decisions we make, but he doesn't go, okay, okay, just come back. I'll change everything. That's not how God works. And it's not how we are to act. We are supposed to raise the standard and keep the standard. And if we don't as Christians, how will the world know? But if we're not consulting the wonderful counselor, 
We're going to get caught up in all kinds of things that are going on right now. Because as sure as I am standing here today, God said, listen, if you go this way, there is a curse attached to sin. Adam, here's the curse that you invited in. Eve, here's the curse that you invited in. And they're both attached to the roles that they played and how they failed in the garden. And then he looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. When it says her seed, it's capital S, talking about Jesus, who is to come down out of her body. He shall bruise your head. In other words, it will be fatal. And you will bruise his heel. It'll be a temporary thing. The thing that I love is that from this point forward, there is a redeemer-focused counseling that happened, and it begins right here. From now until the rest of the Bible, it was all redeemer-focused counseling. Every bit of counsel that God gives us is based on redeeming us. Every single bit of it. They were no longer covered with fig leaves but with animal skins. The entire Old Testament anticipates Jesus Christ. It's a type and shadow. It's all foreshadowing Jesus who is to come. And then in the New Testament, he came for you and I. And he was born in a manger as a baby. Her seed would reverse what she started. There again is that juxtaposition. Do you know why advice abounds in our culture right now? Advice abounds because crossroads abound. Because we don't always know what to do. There are gray areas that we don't understand, uncharted waters, territories. That is why we need our wonderful counselor. Because knowledge is the accumulation of facts. But wisdom is the ability to rightly apply those facts. For my 30th wedding anniversary, my husband took me to Greece and we had the best time, except there are probably three or four times uh, somebody nearly plowed me down in a car. Because I'm, I'm going through the pedestrian crosswalk from one side of the street to the other side of the street. And they've got it marked off, the lines. And I'm walking through, and these cars literally, nearly, I kid you not, I thought I was in New York. They nearly ran me over. And after the third or fourth time of this, I said to one of the Greek locals, I'm like, what is the problem with people here? Do they not understand that pedestrians have the right of way? And he looks at me and he says, pedestrians don't have the right of way in Greece. And I said, oh. Well, that explains a lot. Knowledge and wisdom are two very different things. I had some knowledge, but wisdom is the ability to rightly apply those facts. Every single one of us in here today, we have a counselor. Sometimes it's our feelings that are counseling us. 
Sometimes it's our past. Do you know how many people I see doing things and I ask them why they are doing that? And it all has to do with their past and how they were raised. Our past is counseling us. Google is counseling us. Who do you consult? Because the question is not if you have a counselor, but to ask you who your counselor is. Who is your counselor? Do you consult someone who will agree with you? Do you consult someone on the same struggle bus that you're riding on? How many times do I see that? I say, well, what, what led you to this decision in your marriage? Well, you know, I was talking with my friend Joey, and Joey, wait, 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 tell, who's Joey? Well, well, he's my friend. How long's Joey been married? Well, Joey's not married. You know, Joey's divorced. Stop. <laughs> of course he's counseling you this way because he wants his party buddy back. We tend to consult people that are either on the same struggle bus as us so they will give us sympathy or they will agree with us. But the message of Christmas is to encourage us that in our confusion and in a world that is filled with misinformation, we have more than capable leader that we can consult. We have a wonderful counselor we can respond to that awe and wonder. And we don't ever need to go elsewhere. Why is it so much easier sometimes to pick up the phone instead of go to the throne? Why? Why do we do that? Why do we look for someone's voice to appease our flesh? when we can have the someone minister to our spirit and our soul and fix the things that we need fixed, give us wisdom and insight. I mean, maybe you've lost a family member and the holidays are just hard for you. Maybe you're like me and there's some type of loss that you're feeling. Maybe you have a relationship with a family member or a child or a loved one, and it's just not in the right place, and man, you're hurting. If we don't consult the right person, we let things in that shouldn't be in. Because sometimes we want easy. We don't want what's right. Easy would have been able to just let Adam and Eve back in the garden. But doing what's right ensured that for the rest of their lives, they were able to be able to have redemption. easy and right don't always collide. Sometimes there's a sadness or a grief that's just, it's dull. Maybe we've, we're busy and so we've kind of pushed it down and it's dull and it's, it's underneath there. Maybe there's some type of trauma or some type of trigger and this memory that just happens around the holidays. Some type of fear. I want to ask you today, who is your counselor? Who 
is counseling you. Would you stand on your feet with me? In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The Bible never says that you and I won't ever grieve. Do you know what it does say? It says that when we do grieve, we still have hope. Some of us need to feel hope right now. Maybe we feel lost in a situation that we're up against. I think we should all just take a moment right now, close our eyes and bow our heads. Whether you're in the room or whether you're online, let's just take a moment to pause and just ask him. Just say to him, say, God, what is it that you need to say to me right now? Because I need your wisdom. I need your counsel and I've been consulting the wrong people, the wrong things. And God, right here, right now in this moment, watching online or in in Freedom House Church, we just ask you right now, God, for your wisdom in the situation that we are facing. God, give us relational wisdom. God, we are hurting. And if we aren't careful, we're going to go for the wrong thing. God, what is it right now that you would say to us? Because right now, we are asking. Ask him right now. Just say, wonderful counselor. I am listening to you right now. Speak to me. Speak to me about the relational issue. God, speak to me about that financial problem. God, speak to me about that hurt that just seems like I'm reliving and rehearsing. Right now, we're just going to pause in every one of us in this room and watching online. God, show us what it is that we've been consulting someone or something else but you. But you are our wonderful counselor. No one else has that title but you. Just ask him right now. Maybe there's a job situation and you need his wisdom. A family problem that just seems like it just keeps rehearsing and rehearsing. Ask him how to break generational curses. Ask him right now. Ask him how to heal your heart. Just sit in his presence because the wonderful counselor is here. He's here right now. That's the thing that's so great about him is when we ask for him, he shows up. The problem is, is we don't always ask. 
but he's here right now. The health issue that you're struggling with, he's waiting for you to ask him. The insecurity that you feel like is insurmountable, that it just plagues you, that root of rejection that was left from your father, the hurt from the last church, you've been sitting on the sidelines because of your wounds when God has made you to be a first string quarterback. He's waiting for you to consult him. He's waiting for you to ask him. He's waiting to heal you, but he needs your okay. Maybe you need some hope. Maybe you need some guidance. Maybe you need some peace. Maybe you need anxiety to lift, confusion to lift. Can you just feel his presence? Just lift your hands up, all of us today. Just lift your hands up. Just say, God, we invite you in right now. We don't want to do it without you, God. Maybe you're someone who hasn't been putting your relationship with him first and maybe you need to come back home today. He's waiting for you right now with his arms outstretched. He's waiting for you to come back home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. He wants you to come back home. He's not a distant God. If there's distance, it's not because he created it. If you're struggling to hear his voice, it's not because he's not speaking. God, remove anything in our life today that is keeping us from hearing your voice. We love you today. We thank you for being our wonderful counselor.